it's just kind of one of these things of how the actual prescription use of it wasn't considered in the initial targeting. We already live in a trans antagonistic society and therefore we're kind of like left out of that and how it's kind of collateral damage. I see a lot of parallels in SESTA-FOSTA with criminalization of sex work and how more difficult it is to navigate that where it just ends up the person being criminalized. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hello, Narcotica listeners. It's Zach Siegel, your co-host. Thanks for tuning in to today's show, where we'll be talking about testosterone. Testosterone is on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. It's prescribed for a number of important reasons, from sexual dysfunction to boosting low production levels, and it's also used in gender-affirming therapy. Yet, for a variety of reasons that we'll get into, testosterone and the tools used to inject it are criminalized in a way that defies all rationality. Like with so many drugs we cover on this show, restrictive and punitive laws carry serious consequences, especially for marginalized people. And like with so many of these laws, they are rationalized by misinformation and fear. Laws restricting testosterone purport to prevent athletes from using the hormone to unfairly enhance their performance. Of course, athletes still find ways around these laws. Other justifications paint testosterone as a dangerous chemical, one that induces toxic rage and violence. A silly character, played by comedian Sasha Baron Cohen, jokingly said, The world's most dangerous chemical weapon is testosterone. That kind of humor really does skewer the nonsense people think about this drug. But that nonsense carries real-world impact, especially for gender-variant people, especially for trans-masculine people. Testosterone impacts people's bodies differently, but it can help alleviate gender dysphoria. The hormone can facilitate the growth of body hair, deepen one's voice, and redistribute weight and increase muscle mass in the face and body. Testosterone can lead to significant improvements in quality of life and reduce mental health conditions like anxiety and depression. And yet, again, outlandish fears led to restrictive laws which led to criminalization and barriers to its access. It's a story of bad drug policy that many of you listeners are by now familiar with. To talk about all of this, we have a great interview lined up that will roll in just a moment. Before doing so, if you don't already, now's a great time to subscribe to our Patreon to show your support and appreciation for the show go to patreon.com slash narcotica. We are 100% listener-funded. That means we are independent, free from marketers and advertisements. As always, thanks so much for listening and supporting us. All right, let's roll the show. With me today is my co-host, Troy Farah, beaming in from California. What's up, Troy? Hey, how's it going? Snow today. Same, but I'm in Chicago, so that makes more sense. (laughs) So on today's episode, we're going to be covering a very important topic that, uh, yeah, is really underreported and and doesn't get enough attention. And to talk about it, we have a very special guest, uh, journalist Adrian Corsioni, who covers drugs, policing, and other topics in harm reduction. So Adrian... Welcome to Narcotica. Thanks, Zach. Uh, Really happy to be here with you and Troy. I'm really excited. Yeah, awesome. So I think to get things started, we, you know, what what kind of brought us all together is 
a recent piece you wrote for Filter. Is that right? Yeah. It's a long form piece published in December called The Criminalization of Testosterone and how it affects, I don't know the official title, but how it affects uh, gender variant people. So uh, transgender men, intersex people, non-binary people, anyone under the gender variance umbrella who takes testosterone for hormone, gender forming hormone replacement therapy. Yeah, like I, I think it's it's totally in our wheelhouse to to talk about chemicals like quote unquote drugs that our own bodies produce. And I mean, we talk about endorphin and serotonin and dopamine. We talk about all these drugs, these critical neurotransmitters in, in our bodies, and they're yeah, really critical to to, to human life and testosterone is is right up there and actually has a lot of interesting intersections with the opioid crisis which we can get into with obviously issues regarding trans people and those undergoing you know transitions in in their gender and so you know to to kind of kick things off i think people listening probably have no idea why the government would care about this drug like why would it be so strictly controlled why would there be all this gatekeeping around this drug maybe that's a good place to to start the history is pretty intriguing and i think unexpected in a way that gender variant people weren't necessarily discussed or really considered with how initial laws to criminalize testosterone targeted cis male athletes going back to the 90s with testosterone as an anabolic steroid combating steroid abuse in competitive sports. Well, yeah, just bring us to, to today. Like, you know, it started with sports, which seems like this really small, tiny thing. Like, how often do people dope with this stuff? I don't even want to use the word dope, but you know, how often people use this drug, this hormone to enhance their athletic ability? Like that seems like a really weird, tiny, very rare occurrence. And then you, the government has all these rules that are extended beyond that. And how do people get caught up in that now? So I think what what is used to, as a performance enhancer, I think it, within like the underground testosterone market, it's one of those drugs that can be bought and purchased online, um, similar to research chemicals. And I think it's more so like amateur athletes that are affected by this now. Although I will say I'm not a sports person. However, I think it's kind of transitioned from this uh, very organized sports and how the initial legislation and law in 1990 uh, was proposed that criminalized testosterone and put it as a scheduled drug under the Controlled Substance Act. And then later in 2004, uh, another law put forth by Joe Biden, of course, uh, kind of amplified these criminalizations. And even though there's no doubt that like performance enhancers are used, but it is a bit of an arbitrary occurrence for particularly testosterone and the type of testosterone that you know, people access for gender affirming care. They're used in different ways and also it's monitored differently. And it's just kind of one of these things of how the actual prescription use of it wasn't considered in the initial targeting that I think goes overlooked and how we already live in a trans antagonistic society and therefore we're kind of like left out of that and how it's kind of collateral damage and kind of puts us even further in the margins for people who are accessing testosterone for gender affirming care. Okay. That makes sense. What are some of the ways that specifically the testosterone is criminalized? Like in, and, and what are some of the things that can happen to someone who is caught with testosterone or syringes? Uh, I really like the example you had in your story. If you want to use that one. Yeah. And I think, too, this falls under stigma for particularly injection drug users, um, where even though it can be a prescription, 
it still falls under that stigma that you need to have to get to get needles and syringes where just going to the pharmacy like I personally argue with the pharmacy to get the right syringes because another thing too is that you need a longer syringe to draw the substance because it's thicker than what is injected into you but kind of scaling back to the story I included of San Francisco a non-binary person on a road trip coming back to their home in New Mexico they were in a small town in Texas just taking a break from driving at night, pulled over in a small town, and then quickly were kind of escalated. Police intervened and being like, hey, what are you doing here? An outsider in a small town, I guess, was suspicious to the point where their car was searched, the prescription testosterone that was in their name, and the syringes were mistaken, I think initially for an opiate uh, heroin but then once it was, it was just kind of a confusion. And I think that's kind of about police aren't exactly experts in gender, no matter how much training they have. And it's very representative that not only did they end up in jail, but they were in a cell with two other, two people who were drug users who were injection opioid users. Um, so I think it's kind of that there's a lot of adjacencies, even though that it's not necessarily the same thing, of course. And that was somebody who had a prescription, right? So the consequences are much more severe if these are under, like obtained online, obtained in the underground market. And also there are health consequences of navigating hormone therapy without the supervision of a doctor and without your blood being monitored. Yeah, like, I mean, one thing that, that sticks out to me is like, why testosterone and and not say like estrogen is controlled and so can you talk about like why testosterone specifically and and not estrogen has this uh strict control because it's it's schedule three right which places it you know like next to i think you mentioned in your piece like you know buprenorphine and, and ketamine like these are psychoactive substances that that are pretty strong and require doctors monitoring you like like is is there anything testosterone on like a pharmacokinetic type of level that places it in this or is it like all drug scheduling where it's pretty dubious and 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 fairly motivated by by all kinds of politics and and stigma yeah, I think it's both. The scheduling is pretty arbitrary in itself. And in terms of like, it's not a psychoactive substance, but with your um, hormone levels, it can be very dangerous to exceed, to go so far where you're exceeding what is quote healthy, what is quote acceptable in your body. I don't really know what that would look like in a cis man. Um but for somebody who's transgender, like there comes to a point where you have so much testosterone in your body that it creates back into estrogen because your body is smart enough to know that like these are what the hormones that it needs, which is why anybody who's under the medical supervision who has a prescription, they do quarterly blood monitoring um, and after a certain time, a period, I think a year, maybe two, that it's every six months. Um, but these are regular check-ins with your doctors undergoing, um, you know, reviewing what progress is being made in your transition, but also if you've had any other side effects because there are like reproductive side effects. And yeah, just the hormone regulates so many things in your body too. So, I mean, that, if I were to guess, I think it's just because it's so, an, it's such an evasive of a thing, whereas opposed, it can kind of affect your bodily, other bodily functions uh, and your health in a way that other drugs don't necessarily mess with your hormones, even though that they can mess with other parts of your body. However, it's part of this kind of like larger arbitrary system where, sure, it's scheduled, and that's what is impactful now. But initially, this the legislation proposed in 1990 
uh, also established penalties for physical trainers who persuade or induce individuals to possess or use uh, testosterone. So I think that's a way of this two-sided criminalization where the actual person who's taking it is criminalized and can be persecuted as, you know, a chemical user, as uh, I don't know if drug user is the right way to describe somebody who's taking a, yeah, so I don't know. But also the coach or whoever, parent, guardian, who is administering testosterone is also criminalized in that way. But yeah, that's what I got. That's what I gather. Yeah, it seems like it's a really complex thing to navigate sometimes. Um, you know, some people can't go to a doctor for testosterone or hormone uh, replacement therapy or gender affirming therapy um, for a variety of reasons. You know, the, the big one being that uh, healthcare is really inaccessible in the United States. But uh, I think it seems like syringe access programs have kind of stepped in and filled the gap in some of these areas. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. And people who use testosterone definitely fall under this drug or injection drug user type of stigma and also just this general lack of services, lack of uh, availability. I think right now in the supply chain, there are shortages of different types of uh, needles and syringes. And while also understanding, like, even though that there are preferred measures of the gauges of the needle, it is fairly flexible, even though there's an optimal measure of it. But I think just of what we know about LGBT people and the community at large, how it's more likely to experience drug addiction, not necessarily drug use, knowing that those two things often are kind of equated, but addiction is more prevalent in LGBT people, uh, especially taking into account the systematic oppressions we, the barriers we have in employment, housing, all of that. And all of that is amplified too for transgender people, also for transgender people of color um, who also are sex workers too. So I think needle exchanges and also transitioning and the more prevalence of overdose consumption sites have the real potential to fill gaps and needs uh, in the community and possibly get people the care that they need because it would be really awesome if like, and clin LGBT clinics may do this, but in my experience, I have not seen it, but like, you know, it'd be really cool if I could bring my needles to my doctor uh, who is already gender affirming, right? Currently that's not the case. I don't know. I'm sure I would hope that it would be in elsewhere. Um, but I think there are unique needs the LGBT community has that a typical typical syringe centers may not have. However, I do recognize that these are also pretty monumental for uh, coming out of AIDS era activism. And, and it's very critical to uh, reduce the transmission of HIV to have access to clean needles. Yeah, uh, I'm not really sure like like the exact statistics on rates of drug use among queer people, but uh, I think that uh, you know rates of isolation, depression, PTSD, anxiety, all of that are much higher, not because of any inherent aspects of being gender variant or something like that, but because we have this fucked up society that makes everybody feel like aliens, uh, that they're less than or different or should, they don't fit in. I forget what the way you put it earlier, but I really liked that. Trans antagonist. Trans antagonist, yeah. So, so sometimes people reach for a chemical that will help. And I, I think that, you know, you pile on all the stigma from just criminalizing substances in general. And then you combine that with all the stigma against people that don't fit into this one box of heteronormacy. It, it's just like compounds everything and makes everything so much worse. Absolutely. And I want to mention, too, that there are ongoing bills to criminalize transgender people, particularly transgender youth. You know, the whole sports conversation is very relevant to how trans exclusionary radical feminists, conservatives, all of those allies that are against trans identity kind of weaponize testosterone against transgender women as if that is something to enhance performance when really we're giving testosterone way too much credit. And the reason why I don't 
necessarily say testosterone is like a like equivalent to a drug user because these things aren't used recreationally in a way that you would drop acid. These are more pervasive in the sense that it's body image, body dysmorphia, how these things are not limited to uh, gender variant people, although we're obviously very much affected by it on our daily existence. This is just like a symptom of patriarchy, capitalist patriarchy, of how we see ourselves and how we want to be seen, which transgender people, of course, gender variant people, we know this very well, and this is a daily struggle. And I think for other identities, it might be hidden or un, like not really realized the ways in which not only expected to perform your gender, but be perceived by others as the correct gender and the behaviors and everything that goes along with that. And particularly for youth, I think it's in Texas, one of the most like harmful, violent pieces of legislation is how transgender kids, if it is revealed that they are transgender and that their parent caregiver is mediating, you know, gender affirming services, that they're, you know, a child abuser. Because according to the state, pursuing gender affirming care falls under child abuse, which is a totally outrageous, outrageous claim. And I would argue that it's actually the exact the opposite to have your a transgender child, you know, continue to live life as the incorrect gender that they were assigned to. And it's very violent. And yeah, so the socio-political climate of what it is to be gender variant, to be um, not cishet in this particular climate of what we know is already going on with for teenagers and kids right now, it's really hard to be just even if you're not trans, it's really hard to be a young person right now. So I can only imagine what it must be like for someone undergoing gender dysphoria during COVID that is so young and potentially trapped in an unsafe situation and just the state being that much more violent in that young person's life. Yeah, I, I think it's in, like it's really important that we're talking about this the week that that news broke about Texas Governor Greg Abbott, and I believe it's his uh, attorney general. They're kind of, yeah, as you said, trying to legislate gender-affirming care under the the, the category of, of, of child abuse. And then, you know, leading up to that was so much kind of panic about Leah Thomas, the, the Ivy League swimmer who is trans and you know winning and and people you know all of a sudden caring about uh women's sports and kind of crying these like crocodile tears of oh these these poor women swimmers are are getting beat by a like a, a trans woman and like calling into question all kinds of ideas about gender and, and, and biology and creating all these really like nonsense debates. I mean, like one week it's crack pipes and then the next week it's, you know, freak outs over trans youth. And it just seems like the, the, the right has this dartboard that they're just, you know, spin the wheel, throw the dart and, and pick the, kind of marginalized person to to hold up as like the destruction of western civilization and 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 yeah like i, I just think it trying to kind of set all this context and zoom out of it it's like there's a reason why we all should be caring about this that like you know it's it's drug users or trans kids or or queer people or, or any, it, 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 like, there's no end. Like they'll come after you for some reason. Um, like it, it, it's just, you know, conceding on these things is such a, such a setback. And, and I think, yeah, like hearing from someone like you right now, can you kind of, yeah, speak to that, this, this climate we're in and, you know, it just reminds me of 
of all the kind of questions we wrestle with of like how do we communicate about these things to the public and and get them to care and see that like these issues actually affect everyone you know i mean when we talk about gender variant we're talking about any gender identity that is not cis male or cis woman and being somebody who's gender fluid there are many otherwise cis people in my life that I get to in, no, get in on that they're not actually uh, like aligned with their assigned gender in the sense of they might not be transgender per se, but they don't adhere or subscribe to what it means to be a cis man or cis woman. And I think that's extremely more common than people who identify as cis know to be true. The, the idea of what is cisgender uh, male and female is not what you think and how many people actually adhere to these things because they're sure. I'm sure there are macho men. I'm sure that they are love, there are absolutely women who love being women and that's not a bad thing. And there are people around you who may not identify as trans, who may not identify as something other than cis um, that you know may or may not feel safe talking about it with the people around them. So it really starts with you know, I want to have a more clear action than creating a safer space. But I do think that challenging gender in your own life and being able to challenge it when we see these roles, when we see these biases play out um, with your family, with your friends, these things are really important because somebody that you might know and love might be searching of like, how do I know if I'm transgender on the internet? Because that's where everyone starts. It's where a lot of young people are absolutely starting because the internet is, is so readily available and there are so many more people who are visible. Yeah. I want to kind of go back to the Texas news because it's so fresh. I mean, it just broke yesterday. Um, and I don't think anybody really knows yet how this law will be implemented or if we even get struck down. I wonder if somebody who's getting gender affirming care, if they had testosterone or even estrogen, like if that would suddenly become a reason to prosecute somebody for child abuse. I mean, I don't know if we even know that. And I don't want to sound alarmist, but it does seem like a slippery slope from criminalizing the paraphernalia associated with gender variant healthcare to criminalizing actual trans people. I and mean, it feels like that's the end goal. Um, I, there's all these different laws that are kind of pending in other states that are designed to demonize people that are gender variant it's just just crazy and i think that talking about testosterone and how that's criminalized is just sort of like a small part of this bigger picture but how do you feel about that do you think that this is sort of leading up to that like even something as small as i don't want to say small but you know criminalizing testosterone and putting this behind this ivory tower I think could have much broader consequences on people's rights to exist. Absolutely. And I think it is a criminalization of people. I see a lot of parallels in SESTA-FOSTA with how sex work became criminal or the further amplification of the criminalization of sex work and how more difficult it is to navigate that, um, where it just ends up the person being criminalized. I mean, I wonder what the legal consequences would be so let's say, let's say you are a parent of a transgender boy who is under the age of 18 in a place like Texas, where suddenly it is um, illegal for you to pursue any type of a gender affirming care for your son. What if it's life or death? What if you seek the underground market? for testosterone, and then you have this added criminalization, this added legal consequence upon what the state has just recently enacted. So are you prosecuted for testosterone underground administering that? Would it be the same criminalization if you had a young cis boy who did sports and you decided to um, give him testosterone to enhance his performance? Like, would that be the same? I, you know. According to the books, it seems that I'm not a lawyer, uh, but obviously with this added criminalization of like what the state has proposed, uh, it just makes you wonder of like how 
much more like how worse it can get um based on what how like how it's already difficult for people to access this because it's not like sure there is a legal means of obtaining testosterone especially in states with the informed consent model which essentially is like you don't have to go prove to a mental health professional that you're trans or gender variant before you get gender affirming care um, but let's say you are in a state where you have informed consent um, there are tremendous bureaucratic barriers it's like for someone who's been on a stimulant prescription and testosterone <laughs> it is way easier for me to get a stimulant and it's not easy to get a stimulant you know so because it becomes of like I don't know fighting with the pharmacy and also just like the pharmacy part of it brings so much stigma in it's like how the trope within my community is like all right I'm going to the pharmacy to get my form hormones or I'm going to get dead named and misgendered when it's you know uh for, and for everyone also estrogen too um so that in itself is like a very painful uncomfortable situation at best without even thinking about insurance of <laughs> what they're willing to cover and what they're not. Um, because these, these are barriers even for people who with people within the community who are privileged. Yeah. And, and I think that pushes people away and it's discouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Like slightly tangential to this, but something I've been looking into is, is just the, the fact that people with opioid addictions, um, they, like after prolonged use of opioids, testosterone levels are, are suppressed for all sorts of physiological reasons. And, you know, one thing that's really not standard care and not part of, of, of addiction treatment or say like if you're at a, a methadone clinic, like people uh, don't have access or aren't even aware that their testosterone levels are being suppressed and that this can have all kinds of detriments to to their health and this is you know applies to men with opioid use disorder mostly but that you know over time when their testosterone levels are are uh you know well below the like the baseline they have depression and can't concentrate and have all kinds of side effects from this and yet it's just like that that's just what happens when people take opioids but you know very few people are uh, aware of it or are even told that there's treatments like you know they can take a supplementary dose of testosterone to to help them and I just wonder, like, because of all these barriers and 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 stigma, just like how how much of that is contributing to to people relapsing or being having ongoing problems, um, you know, that that could be solved with a, a pretty simple uh, fix, like in the form of a testosterone prescription, like has. Has that come up on on your your, your radar at all in, in this topic and and it, it, like to me it, it, it kind of just seems like because this drug has all this stigma attached and these strict controls that uh, they just create all these barriers and it, it's people can't get it or don't even know that they might need it something that came up after reporting where people were eager to share experiences because it's a topic I'm interested in going into depth more. I think I kind of just bring the surface of the many ways that this can impact people. Um, and one of the experiences, the voices I heard from, so in the context of psychiatric units, but I think this would also be true for re addiction recovery centers where there is um, you know, a doctor doing the medicine that is being prescribed while a patient is in that inpatient center at a time. And, you know, that person's not your doctor that is familiar with 
your full health history. And that's, I think, Zach, of what you were saying is um, that is something that can absolutely be overlooked. But also for gender variant people who go to these uh, inpatient services, it's under the discretion of that doctor whether or not that person receives gender-affirming hormone therapy. And it's not uncommon for people to deny that. One of the voices I heard, it was a non-binary person on testosterone and their friend in the unit who was on, they're a trans-feminine non-binary person on a testosterone or blocker. And the person, yeah, the person who I heard from, they weren't doing that much advocating for the testosterone because they kind of saw it as like a dead end, uh, like why not bother or don't bother type of thing. Um, but their friend, needless, like they advocated for themselves to please give me, please give me this medication. This is a routine thing. <laughs> I'm non-binary and like my regular doctor thinks this is medically necessary, but that doctor, you know, whether it's ignorance or just holding views to antagonize transgender and gender variant people, I'm probably both <laughs> if you were to ask me, but yeah, either one of those things. It, that that person has the power to deny people gender-affirming care while they're seeking treatment for uh, psychiatric reasons, for to addiction recovery services, uh, and similar mental health services while there are inpatient. Maybe we could talk about some ways that we can start amending this issue. Uh, you do address this in the article about you know, maybe rescheduling testosterone, moving it to a lower tier, like four or five, or maybe even removing it from the Controlled Substances Act entirely. Um, and another question is, do you see any progress being made on this issue anywhere? I know we've been talking a lot about uh, transphobic laws that are being passed or being proposed in certain places, but hopefully we're moving in the opposite direction in some other areas. Yeah. When the article was published, I think it sparked a lot of conversation in the general drug policy sphere on Twitter, on social media, where a lot of people who I knew uh, were grateful to read it because they hadn't considered it. And I'm thinking most of like cisgender people, uh, which is, that was kind of the point because the part about this is that it is so known and so like matter of fact and general community knowledge to people who are on testosterone, that it's mostly in the community. So part of the reporting that I think was successful was making it a conversation um, in like the drug policy space um, and how gender variant people seeking testosterone hormone therapy who are on it face this kind of unique criminalization as collateral damage um, on a really arbitrary law. I mean, most drug laws are arbitrary, let's be honest, but this one is particularly pretty puzzling, I would say. And there is a, I mean, I'm not, what I've heard there, it's such a hidden issue that I haven't really seen any calls for reform for it. I do think taking it off the Controlled Substance Act would and descheduling it would make it much more accessible to get in like a medical context and also thinking about insurance too they would make things easier um, but i think kind of like this larger issue especially understanding the ways that injection drug users um, have this stigma too is just like the controlled substance act doesn't really serve a purpose in actual yeah i mean like that's the thing it doesn't actually curb steroid use in sports like prohibition doesn't do anything to um actually intervene when these things happen because i think there is a pretty pervasive issue that actually is child abuse when somebody is like you know a young person is taking a steroid that they probably don't have like a say in what they're you know don't have a say in how that's going to be used and i think that's very unique for um, sports and how it's a very money-driven industry. Most industries are. Don't know why I chose money-driven. But, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting um, how that can be flipped. But what I would like to see <laughs> is um, abolish the DEA, abolish the Controlled Substance Act, 
Um, all of these things don't do anything to actually uh, improve the lives of people with addiction. They only harm them. And even for people who have the collateral damage, um, transgender people are still widely, widely impacted by drug policing, just unrelated to testosterone, just based on the marginalizations that exist. Um, I think there's a statistic out there. It's like one in every two, like, I think it's like 47% of black transgender people will be incarcerated at least once in their lifetime. So it's almost like one in two people. Yeah. There was this pretty horrific story recently of this person named uh, Juzima Goldring, 29-year-old black trans woman from Atlanta who was stopped by police for jaywalking, then falsely accused of possessing cocaine and spent more than five months in jail. And she was just awarded 1.3, sorry, 1.5 million from a judge, which, you know, maybe that'll get lowered or eaten up by attorney fees or whatever, but you still took away five months of this person's life on trumped up charges. And I think this demonstrates how especially terrible the drug war is on people of color and gender variant people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's just this larger issue of policing and criminalization of gender variant people, anybody who isn't cis, and even, you know, uh, anybody, even cis people who are LGBT or, you know, LGBT people at, at large too. And I think there was something called the walking wall trans ban that kind of connects being transgender or the, this assumption that if you are transgender, gender nonconforming, walking on the street, you're equated with a sex worker. And only recently did New York repeal that, uh, that type of law. So these, these laws are really pervasive that have a deep cultural history. These are really outdated laws. And I think they can be further weaponized by the right today, where, of course, there were ill intentions decades, years, centuries ago. However, this kind of like, biological essentialism a man is a man you know a, a person who is assigned male at birth is will always be a man and the same for women for people who are assigned female at birth is a very like only i think in recent history with knowing the right has never been not sexist but i think in the past 10 past five years that a lot of this stuff has been amplified especially when young people are involved, because there is this panic, moral panic of what happens if, you know, your kid is transgender and what are the ways that that's harming people in society as a whole when, you know, it's not really on a child to think of how society will be affected, but also it's not really, you know, they're not really affected by that. Um, so I guess if what I was trying to say is just, it's gotten particularly bad for gender variant youth. Yeah, like I feel like with these laws criminalizing testosterone and overly regulating it, uh, like I, I think I just see like a, a big parallel to uh, a lot of drug laws and, you know, broadly to drug policy in general that like so much of the criminalization like what what drives it is kind of so much misinformed fear and just rampant you know just kind of misinformation and all these lies spread about these substances and like it just seems like with testosterone it, it seems like it's widely believed that like it you know causes people to become violent and and you know the the same thing is attached to all sorts of other drugs like it's it's like you know attaching you know stigma misinformation fears of violence to these substances that then in turn drive the the restriction of them and so just like kind of zooming out here there's just so many parallels where um just a broader ecosystem of fear about these substances just feeds into their their restriction and, and just really causes harm for people and and it's like you know we we can cite all the evidence that like it's there's no conclusive link 
between testosterone and violence, but like those, those kinds of things are still out there. And yeah, it just, you know, conversations like this and articles like yours that, that debunk these, these harmful narratives are just sadly what's necessary to, to fix drug policy and to also, you know, help change the conversation about, you know, these transgender laws and all these harmful things happening. So thanks so much for uh, doing the work that you're doing. Thank you. Um, and yeah, to go off with like that fear, talking about it more, I think the right and just trans exclusionary radical feminists, anybody who is in denial um, that trans people are real and here and valid. If we had gender affirming care that was truly equitable, it would be free and accessible to all. So that includes not just gender affirming hormone therapy, also includes the different surgeries um, and surgical procedures that trans people seek that are very expensive um, and generally unattainable to most. Um, because once people have access to gender affirming surgeries, what is the cultural norm of like what someone who is assigned male at birth, someone who is assigned female birth, and just this idea of like, if your gender can change once or multiple times throughout a lifetime and you can go through different transitions, I think that is a scary thing for people who oppose the idea that you can change your gender because it is so fluid and it's not a fixed identity that people are used to that traditionally culturally were grown and taught to be true. So um, unfortunately that's what's driving a lot of this, uh, especially adding to the violence that already exists. Um, and in the future, you know, informed consent model can be really great for places that require to see a mental health professional for six months, a year, however amount of time for a mental health professional to sign off and saying this person is the gender identity that they hold true to themselves. Um, and a lot of the systems that we have in place are still very slow and lagging and there's tons of room for improvement, which again, because this, the healthcare system was not designed for trans people in mind, much of like this legislation that we talked about or the laws that we talked about today in terms to the criminalization of testosterone. Yeah. I mean, the healthcare system wasn't even designed with females or women in mind. It's really just for men. It, it hurts all of us, you know? I mean, it doesn't even really benefit men in the long run because health is collective, you know, it's not just an isolated thing. And I like the connection you were making to, uh, you know, moral panics uh, and drug panics, because every drug panic is a moral panic. It's not based on evidence. It's not based on science. It's based on fear, uh, whether it's, you know, that fentanyl can cause an overdose by touching it or Narcan parties or uh, whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's all the same sort of logic that somebody that just saw something on Fox News cooked up and then a legislator picked up on that and then we have to spend all of our energy fucking fighting it. It's exhausting. And I hope that it gets better. I really do, because I don't want to see more people dying from any of this stuff, um, from overdoses, from not understanding or, or not feeling understood. Are there any organizations uh, that are fighting this that we can highlight? There's a really great website compiled by journalists kind of capturing. You can look up what you know, uh, anti-trans legislation is in your state where you can kind of see on a localized scale, like how it's affecting where you live in the United States. Um, and I think the, there are state and local headed efforts, especially I think it's stronger in the South Reconcile Arkansas is one of them, um, is a group that was founded uh, by gender variant people. Is a, that's a great one. Um, but I think nationally at large, let me follow up with you. Can, I, can we include some links for the show notes? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, 
we'll definitely put some links up there. Maybe to, to close out, we can plug you. Where can people find your work and find you online and follow the important coverage you're you're doing? Yeah, you can find me at adriancorsione.com. You can also follow me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at mixthem, M-X-T-H-E-M-M-E. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has uh, been a good topic. And I, you know, I think we got to raise more awareness about this kind of thing because it, 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 for cisgender people, it really is not something that they think about very often. I remember when I saw your article in Filter Magazine in December and I was like, you know, this is a thing that's sort of in the back of my mind, but it's not like we got to bring it to the forefront because it's just like so many other aspects of the drug war is totally ridiculous and it's actively harming people that are already marginalized. Like, let's make things a little less worse for them. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it was really awesome to be a part of it. Yeah, thank you. All right. Yeah, so definitely look to the show notes for more information about testosterone criminalization and organizations work doing important work. Should you have a question or complaint or just want to say something nice? That's everything, guys. Have a good one.